Shalom everyone, this is Shomer Man coming at you with your Parasha Midnight Torah Study for Parasha Kev. Tonight I'm going to be focusing on Avoda, which is Hebrew for not necessarily prayer, but uh, we will start unpacking that because this is a word that definitely embodies the meaning of what prayer is. Um, to pray is called to daven which is daven in Hebrew, is to pray. And then you have tefillah, which is a type of prayer. And so there's takina, which is supplication, and so on and so forth. So we will unpack this word and uh, take a look at that in the context in which we are studying the parasha this week. So without further ado, let's get started with the opening bracha. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bachar banu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. Amen. Adonai, may you bind us to the Lapid, Mashiach Yeshua. May you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. And may Mashiach speedily come soon in our days. Hallelujah. All right. So if you are to take a look at Pirkei Avot 1-2, the Ethics of the Fathers, I took a picture of this wonderful uh, passage as it's posted at our shul. Um, Shouts out to our Rebbe for um, this beautiful uh, vision that Hashem has granted him that he is sharing with us as a community that this uh, passage in Pirkei is something that really we should focus on for this upcoming season that we're entering into. Well, we're already in it, so, you know, we're walking in it now, but just something to kind of help us focus as we head into the new year, as we uh, anticipate and hasten the coming of Mashiach, that this is what it says. On three things, the world depends on Torah, on the service and on acts of loving kindness. And if you look at those three pillars, those three things are Torah, which is obviously the word of God. And then you have avoda, which is what prayer is. It's the kind of service that prayer is, is avoda. And then you have chesed, which is kindness. And so if you put all three of those words together and look at the last letter of each word, you have hey, hey, dalit. Hey, hey, and dalit is the word for the echo. Now, if, as well as if you do the numerical value of hey plus hey plus dalid, you get the numerical value of 14, which is yod. So the hand is what that word is as far as the numerical value of 14. The other numerical value of 14 is David, as in King David, who calls himself literally prayer. Uh, let me give you that source real quick. Uh, stand by. That is Tehillim 109.4, which says, In return for my love, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. 
So basically in the middle of trials and tribulations and challenges and struggles, then David calls himself prayer. He says, I am prayer. So um, there's that. And if you think about what the hand of God is, especially when the word the echo is definitely related to David and related to the hand, you see that the voice of God is the hand who is prayer, who is likened to King David. This is why the Mashiach is literally called the Messiah, son of David. You know, the king of Israel, the one who will sit on the throne that will endure forever. That is Melech Mashiach Yeshua, you know, the son of David. And literally, Yeshua walked the earth as Mashiach ben Yosef, but he was also called Mashiach ben David, you know, and that's why the blind man kept yelling, son of David, son of David, please, you know, and beseeching him for mercy and healing. And then you think about the fact that Mashiach was literally the son of a carpenter, which, by the way, that word is harash in Hebrew. And so you literally see that Mashiach, Yeshua, is the son of a harash. Now, where have we seen the word harash before? I'm glad that you've asked. It is the title that was given to Betzalel back in Shemot. And Bedzalel is called a Harash because he is a craftsman. He is a temple builder. And so you start unpacking it. You see the Mashiach being Yosef is the son of the temple builder. And then you see Betzalel, his name literally means Be in Zel shadow El. Betzalel in the shadow of El, which is in the shadow of God. And so we already have this picture that Mashiach ben Yosef is definitely going to be the one to build the temple. And he's also the son of one who is titled the temple builder. And if you think about Yosef from Bereshit, literally the 11th son of Yaakov, that he is the one who was called the stone. And uh, let me get that reference real quick. Here we are. So we have Bereshit 49.22 that says, Yosef is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. And then we have, all right, so it's uh, Bereshit 49.22 and really 24 is where he uh, mentions that Yosef is a stone, but Let's just read this whole section here. It says, Yosef is a fruitful vine, verse 22. And it says, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. But his bow remained steady. His arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Yaakov, because the shepherd the rock of Israel. And if you kind of look at this, let me go ahead and expand this up some more here. It says, because of your father's God who helps you, 
because of the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and womb. Your Father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all the rest, or let all these rest on the head of Yosef, on the bow of the prince among his brothers. So, I'm going to go ahead and just uh, pull out some uh, midrash on this. So, was not really intending to go this far into it, but now that we've kind of opened this up, I definitely want to take a second look at this. This is from Parsha Vayaki, and I'm going to go to the Kehot Humash, the Kehurt Humash. I'm going to look at these verses here. All right, so <clears throat> looking at the interpolated here, I'm going to start in 22. I'm just going to reread this again, but this has got like basically some Rashi commentary and some Lakute Sakot Rebbe commentary, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, that is. And uh, here we go. So it says, Yosef is a charming man, charming to the eye. I know that the Egyptians' girls used to walk along the wall in order to gaze upon his beauty. So we already see this idea that Yosef is likened to one who is gazed upon by the eye and considered to be called beautiful. And, oh my goodness, this is going out of control. Okay, so I'm thinking about the stone that is called beautiful. They will shout to it, grace, grace. Uh, let's see, where is that at? Yes, Zechariah 4. <laughs> and it says, What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God. God bless it, God bless it. And if you look at what the actual Hebrew says, it actually says that they cry out to it. Uh, it uses teshuot, okay, shoutings, chain, chain, which is grace, grace, or favor, favor. And it literally says, he shall bring forth vehodzeto, or siga vehodzi et ha'evan. And if you remember, Ha'evan, which is the stone, literally you see the word Av, which is the Aleph and the Vet, which is father. And then you also see the Bet and the Noon, which is Ben, is son. So you see the one who is the father, the one who is the son, this is the stone. And then you think about the verse that says, for unto us a child is born and you shall call him. Let's see, I'm pulling that up too. Just uh, rapid fire right now. <laughs> this is uh, Yeshiyahu, of course. Yeshiyahu chapter 7. Uh, we're going to go into, let's see. Okay, Sleeka, I apologize. That is actually Yeshiyahu 9 6. This is what I was thinking about. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, which is Sar Shalom, by the way, is Prince of Peace. Then you got Everlasting Father. 
So we see that the Mashiach is going to be called a father as well as being a son. And so if we go back to our Zechariah verse, we're already looking at the fact that he is the foundation stone, which is the Evan. And then it says that we're going to cry out grace, grace to him. And then we're looking at Yosef, who types and shadows this for us so beautifully. And then not only that, but we see that he's called the vine here. Remember, Mashiach says, I am the true vine, you know, and you are the branches. And then as he is saying this, we're already talking about Mashiach ben Yosef. And so, like, everything is literally all wrapped up right here. So back to the interpolated, it says that when I met my brother Asaph, Yosef stood in front of his mother Rachel and drew himself up to his full height to protect her from the covetous eye of Asaph. As a reward for rising to his full height to protect her, he rose to greatness as a viceroy of Mitzrayim. And remember, Mitzrayim is a euphemism as far as all of commentary goes for um, the meaning of the power and the magnitude of this nation. Literally, Mitzrayim is called the world. You know, at that time, pretty much they were the dominating power over all nations in the world. So it's literally looking at here that Yosef rose to greatness of viceroy of the world. You know, like in other words, when he became second in command to Pharaoh, that Yosef was considered not only a king, but king of the world, so to speak. Like uh, Melech HaOlam, because remember, like king of the world, because Olam can also represent the world, which we also know Olam can represent uh, all of creation as well. So literally within there, that's kind of like a pun that you see that he's the king of the world, but he's also the king over creation. And so uh, not necessarily saying that Yosef was over creation, but we know that Mashiach being Yosef is the one from whom creation was emanating from. Because remember that Hashem created all of the world with the Torah Mashiach is the living Torah, like he's the Torah made flesh, you know, taking on the likeness of man, basically. So, again, types and shadows, we see if we look at Yosef, we can see some beautiful pictures and insights to our Mashiach. And remember that uh, Yochanan opens up in his first chapter in the writings of the Basora when he says that the law, the Torah, came through Moshe and grace came through Mashiach. And again, which one came first? Obviously, Mashiach was before creation. So grace actually came forth. And then there was this idea that there's going to be grace in the law, which is why we have the sacrifices, which is why we have Teshuva, which is why we have Hashem in the first place showing us the path of righteousness that we are to walk in. You look at Devarim chapter 30, when Hashem says, I said before you life and death, I want you to choose life. You know, because grace is giving us something that we do not deserve. And if you think about 
our original choice in the beginning. Hashem said, you can eat of all the trees and of all the plants in this garden except this one tree. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And what did we do? We chose to eat from the tree that death would cause or stem from, pun intended. You know, and it's just kind of like through the Mashiach Yeshua, we were shown there's this path that you can take, the path of life, the path of truth, the path of Torah, the path of blessing. You know, if you walk in my ways, if you forsake your own understanding, forsake the tree of knowledge and good and evil, forsake that tree, put that aside, cast that away, you know, and come over here to the tree of life, walk in this, you know, and so we see all of this through uh, Mashiach Yeshua uh, pictured here in Yosef. So because he stood up against Esau, he uh, protected his mother and this gave him some reward and merit to become great in the world, namely Mitzrayim. And then it says, thus his charm became well known. And whenever he went forth to oversee the affairs of the country, the Egyptian girls used to walk along the wall in order to gaze upon his beauty. And it's so interesting that when you think about Mashiach Yeshua and his description as based in Yeshayahu 53, it says that he has no appearance such in which we would esteem him, you know, and then he was marred beyond belief when it came to him offering himself literally as a living sacrifice for us, i.e. being the sapphire tablets that were shattered and the spirit departing when he said, you know, into your hand, I command my spirit. And he gave up the ghost, you know, the Ruach HaKodesh departed from him, just like the Ruach, the Torah departed from the sapphire tablets in the hands of Moshe. And so we see that picture as well. And then it says the descendants of Yosef will be as prolific as a grapevine planted near a spring. They will be so prolific that two tribes, both of them comparable in size to the other tribes, will issue from them. Nonetheless, they will be immune to the evil eye. Now, the evil eye is talked about in Bereshit 48.16. So let's go ahead and go to that. It's all over the place today. We're just jumping here. We're jumping there. <laughs> it's like we're doing Torah study or something. Okay, so making sure I got my coordinates right. Bereshit 48.16, because this is interesting. It says that the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, bless the lads and them May my name be recalled and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Yitzhak, and may they be teeming multitudes upon the earth. So now we're seeing that the congregation, the peoples that will issue forth from Yosef, literally the children of Yosef, will be comparable in size as far as tribes go to all of the other tribes of Israel. And you think about how many converts are coming because of Mashiach Yeshua, you know, that we know that Mashiach is supposed to lead the nations in the Torah. And so that naturally means uh, a large influx of people <laughs> entering into covenant with Hashem because, you know, that's what kind of happens when uh, Mashiach Yeshua circumcises your heart. You kind of like enter into Torah, which is entering into the name of Hashem, which is like into a mikvah because 
It says in Yirmiyahu uh, that Hashem is the hope of Yisrael. And then we see that the word for hope of Yisrael, literally the Hebrew says Hashem is the mikvah of Yisrael. And so one who enters the mikvah is considered to be a newborn, a new creation, which would by default mean that you have transitioned from death into life. You've transitioned from being a goy, a Gentile, a idolater or an idolater, and you've now become a child of Yisrael. That's why literally you say Baruch Ata Adonai, blessed are you, my Lord. He now becomes your Lord. You have forsaken all other gods, all other deities for the sake of Hashem. So anyway, and by the way, as far as the laws of conversion, that the only person who is allowed to say the bracha for converting is a child of Israel. So in other words, the one who enters into the mikvah, they first must immerse. And after the first time that they immerse themselves under the water, when they come up out of the water, they say the bracha. So deductive reasoning, if only someone from Yisrael can say the bracha, and after you immerse, you're now allowed to say that bracha for the conversion. It's just kind of like, okay, so welcome. You're now become born again. That's literally where the term born again comes from. And so you look at all this and through Yosef, you're brought in, you're mikvahing, you're making teshuva, you're turning from the ways of the world and you're entering into the kingdom. That's that's conversion. And you're B'nai Yosef as well as B'nai Yisrael. So this is escalating very, very quickly because this is not what I was planning to talk about. But you know what? Baruch Hashem. Because we were looking at the evil eye that we we're protected from. And that comes from Rashi on Bereshit 48.16. It says, and let them increase. That verse about let them increase. It says... That or the phrase from this verse, and it says like fish, which is literally dagim. So if you think about the concept of being uh, as numerous as the fish of the sea, you know, uh, there is the bracha for uh, Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And then you have here the descendants and the offspring of Yosef literally through Ephraim and Manasseh, that they're going to be a congregation of people, literally congregation, kahal, and ecclesia, a gathering of people, will be like the fish of the sea. And so if you think about um, the idea of a fish, you know, that there's a school of fish, there's like a lot of fish. And so uh, when Mashiach says to uh, Kepha and his brother, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Like we're going to fish other people out of the sea. And then the, the waters are called the nations, you know. So when you think about fishing men out of the nations, you know, the, taking the fish out of the water. This is the picture that Mashiach uh, gave to the Talmudim. You know, during the first week of his resurrection, because, you know, he was here for 40 days and <clears throat> so you look at the fact that he says cast your net on the other side and they cast their net on the other side and they pull in all these fish and they pull the fish out with a net 
And then it says that the fish were so numerous that they were starting to tear the net. And then the parable that Mashiach gives that says the kingdom of Hashem is like a net. I got to source that out. It's doing way too many things without giving sources. Can't be doing that. It's like, what's your source for that, Amet? I'm glad you asked. All right. So Matityahu 13, 47. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. Okay. And then cast your net on the other side. That is from Yochanan 21.6. And again, uh, Ben Burton, which I call lovingly Benny B from Ladder of Jacob, has a wonderful article on uh, the fish that were pulled in. And uh, let's see here, Yochanan 21, they do mention how many fish were drawn in. It says that they drew in 153, and there was a whole breakdown of what 153 meant. That's beyond the scope of this podcast, but, you know, Brugashim. And so um, all of that to say that the fishers of men, the waters that they were fished from are called the nations. And so through Mashiach Yeshua, that the nations will be um, fished out. You know, uh, the people, proselytes, converts, children of Israel, literally the fullness of the nations, you know, like part of the 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 uh the the makeup of israel comes from the nations you know it's not just this bloodline thing it's not just children of abraham it's anyone who has joined themselves to hashem anyone who has come in through emuna and mashiach yeshua anyone who turns their face and turns their life and turns their uh trust from idols to hashem so you turn away from idolatry, you repudiate idolatry as a technical term. You are considered to be a Jew from that point forward. To those of you who say, yeah, because I'm not cool with idolatry, and you literally forsake any idolatrous acts, you have now taken the first step to becoming a Jew. So now uh, find yourself a mikvah, uh, which needs to be uh, 40 se'ah of living waters. And it'd be beautiful to have some Jewish witnesses, some people who actually follow Torah, some people who actually believe in Hashem, and uh, at least have two or three witnesses there uh, that can uh, validate the fact that you've completely immersed yourself in this water, whether it be a mikvah or natural water, like a river of some sort, and you immerse yourself in there. And you do the three immersions. Obviously, you say the bracha for conversion after you do the first immersion. And uh, if you don't have two or three witnesses who are actual Yehudim, you can also know that the heavens and the earth are a witness. So even if you're by yourself, you still have two witnesses. So there is that. And then, you know, for the simple fact of the word of Hashem and for the spirit of Hashem, and for the water itself, you have three witnesses there. So either way you slice it, you are surrounded by a great cloud, literally, of witnesses. So you do that, and uh, if you're a guy, you get circumcised. Uh, and then 
the sacrifice is the final step because you know for conversion it is basically the fact that you uh, undergo the mikvah circumcision if you're a guy and then you bring a sacrifice and we have no temple currently and may we have one soon amen when you when we have the temple literally we're going to retro uh retroactively bring our conversion sacrifice in the meantime the blood of yeshua speaks better than that of sacrifices and that is the sacrifice that we bring as well so you know mazaltov to the newborns who are now realizing that we're yehudim so anyway uh the evil eye here comes from barakot 20a and it talks about the fact that through uh being offspring of yosef through ephraim and menashe and remember, by the way, Mashiach Yeshua literally is called Mashiach ben Ephraim. So through Ephraim's lineage, the chosen firstborn son that um, was designated by Yaakov. Because remember, there's this whole thing about Yaakov blessing Ephraim and Menashe. And he's supposed to put a certain hand on one son and the other hand on the other. And Menashe is actually the older son, but... He did not receive the double portion blessing from Yaakov, you know, actually Ephraim did. And so Yosef was all like, uh, Abba, I just need to let you know. OK, let me just read it real quick. When Yosef saw that his father was placing his right hand on Ephraim's head. Oh, son of my right hand. Really? Ephraim, Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben Ephraim, son of my right hand, Yeshua. Oh, my goodness. OK, so. Yaakov placed his right hand on Ephraim's head. He thought it was wrong. Yosef thought it was wrong. And so he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim to Menashe's. And verse 18, not so, father, Yosef said to his father, for the other is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Verse 19, but his father objected, saying, I know, my son, I know. <laughs> Gotta love that answer. He says, I know, I know. This is completely me following the spirit right now. I mean, he really was. I mean, technically, when you hear some someone saying they follow the spirit, it's just kind of like, oh, gosh, here we go again. But remember, to follow the spirit means to follow the word, which means to follow God, which means to hear the voice of Hashem. So there's that. Yaakov is understanding something prophetically that Ephraim, though he is the younger brother, is actually the chosen firstborn. So he keeps going here in verse 19 of chapter 48 in Bereshit. He too shall become a great people, talking about Menashe, and he too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall be plentiful enough for the nations so all right so back to barakot 20a it says so let me reread this rashi commentary like fish of the sea which are fruitful and which multiply and which the evil eye cannot affect okay so barakot 20a is saying that basically through ephraim through the mashiach the evil eye has no effect I want to read that. Let me see if I can find that Barakot 20A drop. That would kind of be interesting to look at. I got flash grenaded by uh, 
Bereshit 21b, I saw something about phylacteries, which we know, uh, which everyone should know. If you see phylacteries, that is the word for to feel in. Oh man, Bereshit or uh, Barakot 21a. This is crazy right now. The recitation of the Shema and grace after meal are both mitzvot by Torah law, while prayer is only by rabbinic law. Snap. Rabbi Yehuda said, from where is the mitzvot by Torah law to recite grace after meals? Devarim 8.10. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And from where is the mitzvah by Torah law to recite the blessing over Torah before it is read? As it is stated, Devarim 32.3. When I proclaim the Lord's name, give glory to our God. Meaning, before one proclaims the Lord's name by reading the Torah, he must give glory to God. Okay, seriously? So there is a Torah law to recite a blessing before Torah, and that verse is where that is. Okay. Oh my goodness. There's a reason why we do all these beautiful, beautiful... Um, prayers and uh all of, all of these quote-unquote traditions tradition i thought i saw phylactery somewhere but um i don't and i'm already way off track so why not let's see if we can find it again okay so i don't see it maybe that was my eyes playing tricks on me or uh maybe we're just not going to get to read it but uh yeah, if I see it again, I, I will uh, definitely share. So, trying to get to Barracote 20A. So, let me just go back there. Okay, Barracote 20A. Looking for the evil eye. Doo -doo -doo. Okay, here we go. It says, the Gemara relates that Rabbi Yohanan was accustomed to go and sit at the gates of the women's immersion sites. Okay. Rabbi Yohanan, who was known for his extraordinary good looks, explained this and said, when the daughters of Israel emerge from their immersion, they will look at me and will have children as beautiful as I. Okay. That's uh, kind of interesting here, dropping in on that. But this is the section. It says, the sages asked him, Master, do you not fear the evil eye? He said to them, I descend from the seed of Yosef, over whom the evil eye has no dominion. As it is written, Yosef is a beautiful vine, a bountiful vine on a spring. Literally, Ale Ayin, Bereshit 49.22. Ayin can both mean spring and it can both mean eye. Seriously, because, you know, Mashiach being a spring of living waters, when he stood up in the temple courtyard in <clears throat> Slika and Yochanan's writings in the Basora, he says that he stood up in the courtyard and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me to drink. And so you look at the eyeing here, it's literally a spring. And then you have the vine, Yeshua being the vine. Literally, he is divine as well as the vine. This is uh, quite the ensemble of assault here. You know, I'm just really right now, I just want to make a confession to everybody. I feel like I'm all over the place right now. And 
my my goal and my heart is just really to share the word of Hashem. And so um, there's all this stuff that's just flying out at me. So I apologize if this is very uh, <laughs> jumbled, but uh, I'm kind of blown away by all these different connections of dots right now, as well as trying my best to find all these sources like right now, because like I said, this is not what I intended to go into. But since I'm reading these things, I think it's good to find these sources and to share them. Okay, so Ayin can both mean spring, it can both mean I. And Rabbi Abahu said a homiletic interpretation. Sound alike, but kind of different, like a homonym. Okay? Do not read it ale ayin, rather ole ayin, which is above the eye. They transcend the influence of the evil eye. Through Yosef, we transcend the influence of the evil eye. Good night. Okay, so... Um, I don't even know where to do with that now. Um, so I'm going to go back to, <laughs> uh, the Humash and keep talking about Yosef here. It says Yosef's, this is a bear sheet. Where are we at? 49. Okay. Bear sheet 49 and 23. This is about to get serious. Yosef's brothers embittered his life and became his assailants. They hated him even though they were his brothers. Destined to share my estate with him, mocking him with their arrow-sharp tongues. Now, Mashiach Yeshua, was he not scorned by the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees? Um, might I add, different sects of Pharisees, not all Pharisees were scorners of Mashiach because you got Nick Dimon, you got Yosef of Arimathea, the one who gave up his uh, hollowed out space tomb that was unused, you know, and uh, different people like that. So there are definitely groups of Pharisees that welcomed Mashiach Yeshua very gladly, I might add. And for that simple fact, Yeshua HaMashiach himself is a Pharisee. And by the way, as followers of Yeshua, we are Pharisees because we believe in the afterlife, namely the Olam Haba. We believe in angels. We believe in reciting blessings before we eat. Uh, basically, following rabbinic tradition makes us Pharisees. Just throwing that out there. So if you use the term rabbi, whether it be to Mashiach Yeshua or whether it be to literally a shepherd that Hashem is in place in your life. Like for us at Sar Shalom, those of us with Lapid, Hashem has granted us the shepherd of Rabbi Griffin and his rabbi is Mashiach. So basically the way the linkage of rabbis work is that, you know, there's this succession of uh, the rabbinic. And so it's passed down. And if you think about Mashiach being obviously the rabbi of all the rabbis, then the fact that our rabbi's rabbi is Mashiach, we're not literally calling our rabbi uh, basically father or rabbi in the sense of Mashiach saying, call no man father, call no man rabbi. You for you only have one father, you only have one rabbi. The, the very fact that he, that Rabbi Griffin defers his rabbinic to Torah, to Mashiach, that is 
this uh, lineage, this secession that you have here, succession, I should say, not secession, like he's receding or whatever, like going away from. But by uh, basically to sum it up, you know, when Shaul is talking to his congregation, and I believe it was the Corinthians. Let me get that source real quick. He says, follow me as I follow Mashiach. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, so anyway, if we're following Rabbi Griffin and he is leading us in the ways of Mashiach, then there you go. That's your shepherd that's entrusted to you by Hashem. Just the same way that Mashiach says, if you receive, like if you are received, talking to his Talmudim, if you're received, then I'm being received. Just like Yeshua says of himself, if you receive me, you're not receiving me, but the one who sent me. So if you get this concept and understanding in Judaism, which, by the way, the word is shliach, which is a sent one, which is a uh, it's typically used for the apostles or um, the messengers. And it says that a shliach is basically considered to be the messenger, the one who sent him. You know, i.e., if uh, if Mashiach sends out shliachim, which are messengers, then it, when we receive those messengers, we're not receiving those messengers, we're receiving Mashiach. Which is why it's important for those of us who are teaching the Gospels for those of us who are teaching about the Messiah, for those of us who are teaching about Torah, we are called Shliakim. And so it's not really us that we need to be worrying about, uh, our, like ourselves. It's not really that. It's we, we are coming in the name of the one who sent us. Mashiach says the same thing. And so whenever we get tripped up thinking, okay, Mashiach is a Shem, or it's like, how does that work? Because he's not the completeness, like the totality of Hashem, but he's the extension. He is the manifestation. He's the son of Hashem. And it's just like, because Hashem sent Mashiach, everything that pertains to Hashem is pertaining to Mashiach. So if we literally defer to Mashiach, we're saying that we defer to Hashem because that's where Mashiach came from. So it's like receiving the one who sent him. So the way that we can receive Hashem is through receiving Mashiach Yeshua. You know, Mashiach Yeshua is sent from Hashem. I mean, this beautiful circle. I, I, I don't know. I'm just going <laughs> to. That's like a lot of words. But anyway, just read Yochanan 17 and just top to bottom and then you'll get a picture of it. So if you place yourself in Messiah Yeshua, you're placing yourself in Hashem. Just like B'nai Yisrael in the wilderness, because they believed in Hashem, they believed in Moshe. Because Moshe was sent by Hashem, and so therefore, hearkening to Moshe, they're listening to Hashem. It's no different with Mashiach, except that Mashiach is not a man like Moshe was. So, there's that. But, I mean, even to get into crazy sources on Moshe, I mean, good night. He's called like a... Uh, angel, part angel, part man at some points. And then in Vezot HaBaraka, start looking at commentaries about him dying and Hashem saying Hashem himself is going to bury his body. So therefore, no one knows where the body of Moshe is buried. And then it's kind of like, well, Moshe only died because he was commanded to. I mean, you start to look at all that and you're just like, wait, what? Who is this Moshe guy? 
And then the gematria of Moshe is 345, which is the same gematria as Shiloh. And literally when it says that until Shiloh comes, when you think about the coming of Shiloh, Yavoh, Shiloh, the coming of Shiloh is the gematria of 358, which is Mashiach. So you can say when Moshe comes, it's Mashiach coming. Or when Mashiach, whose name is also called Shiloh, when he comes, it's Mashiach. So either way you put it, I mean, Yavo Shiloh, which, by the way, may Mashiach Yeshua speedily be sent to us in our days. May we merit to see his coming on the clouds of glory, meriting the, the glorious appearing of our king, of our beautiful foundation stone. To quote uh, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 7. Cool. And so, you know, and again, we just read that as descendants of Yosef, we're uh, immune to the evil eye, which gives us this opportunity to merit the coming of Mashiach Yeshua on the clouds of glory. Because again, Sanhedrin 98 talks about that Mashiach will either come when we don't merit it and he's going to ride on a donkey or He's going to come on the clouds of glory if we're meriting it, if we're meritorious. So you think about where really does our merit come from? Comes Where does our merit come from? It really comes from the fact that we are descendants of Yeshua. Literally, we're stones. We're living stones. You know, we're sons of Yosef. You know, so I'm calling myself uh, saying that we're sons of Yosef because as we're looking at this verse, through Ephraim, Mashiach will descend from Ephraim, Mashiach being Yosef. Mashiach will also descend from David. Well, the beautiful thing about that, the first time we see the name Yeshua in Torah is when Moshe renames Hosea, or Hosea, which is the Hebrew for Hosea, to Yeshua. Remember the whole incident of sending in the 12 spies into the land in Bami Bar? Okay, that's when Moshe named Yehoshua. He named him Yehoshua right there in that passage, which was adding a yod to the name Hosea. So Yehoshua, Yeshua is short for Yehoshua. And Yehoshua is called the son of Nun, which Aramaic of Nun is a fish. So Yehoshua is the son of a fish. And we're talking about here, that the offspring of Yosef will be a prolific congregation of peoples that are like fish. And then you see that Yehoshua marries Rahab and they beget offspring. And eventually you get down to Ruth from Moab who marries Boaz. And so through that whole beautiful picture and that whole lineage between Yosef or Slika between Yeshua marrying Rahab and they're having children. And basically, from what we've traced thus far, just kind of looking at some lineages, that Boaz's uh, father is called Salmon. And basically, Salmon, uh, his wife, basically descended from that lineage from. Uh, Yeshua and Rahab because Joshua is said to have married Rahab, you know, when they entered into the promised land. 
and they they had only daughters. You look at Tractate Megillah, and it talks about that they only had daughters. And so, from what we were able to tell, the daughter, maybe great 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 granddaughter of Yehoshua and Rahab, ended up marrying Salmon, who begot Boaz. So that we see that Ben Yosef and Ben David, literally the lineage crosses and becomes one and Boaz. So Boaz would be the first generation of Ben Yosef, Ben David. I remember Boaz is the great, 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 great granddad of David. When you get to looking at that pure lineage right there, we see that the kings that descend after David are literally the Ben Yosef, Ben David, Mashiach, you know, because Mashiach is the king of Israel. So you have this beautiful lineage, and this is why Mashiach himself, who is a king, literally can be called Ben Yosef, or he can be called Ben David, because the, either way, the answer is yes. For what that's worth, there's some background and some information. Uh, okay. All right, so I'm compelled to look up the Megillah reference here. All right, so we have uh, Megillah 14b. Rav Naman said, Holda was a descendant of Yeshua. It is written here in connection with Holda, the son of Harhas, and it is written in another place in connection with Yehoshua or Yeshua. And Timnat Herez, Rav Ena Sabah, cited the following objection to Rav Naman. Eight prophets were also, or who were also priests, were descended from Rahab the harlot, namely Neriah, Baruch, Sarayah, Maseyah, Yermiyahu, Hilkiah, Hanamel, and Shalom. Rabbi Yehuda says Holda the prophetess was also one of the descendants of Rahab the harlot. We know this because it is written here, the son of Tikva, and it is written elsewhere in connection with Rahab. Sleeka, I'm going to Turn off the timer because we're going way past an hour tonight for midnight Torah study. Okay. Anyway, we know this because it is written here, the son of Tikva, and it is written elsewhere in connection with Rahab, the line Tikva, which is a scarlet thread. He replied, Enasaba, or according to one report, Black Bowl, truth can be found by combining my statement with yours, we must suppose that she became a proselyte, talking about Rahab, and married, and Yeshua married her. But Yeshua, but had Yeshua had any children? It is not written, Noon his son, or is it not written, Noon his son, Yehoshua his son? He had no sons, but he had daughters. That's all uh, Megillah 14b basically looking at the descendants of Rahab and then also looking at Rahab and Yeshua having no sons but only daughters. But the prophets who were also priests, which are sons, uh, descended in that lineage as well. So that's uh, it's a whole lot of stuff right there. <laughs> but anyway, the uh, the chart that I have here basically is talking about the descent of the covenant. And so there's this idea that the covenant is contained with Yosef and the bloodline is contained with Boaz. And so literally, if you want to go the route that Judaism 
and being a Jew is all about bloodline. When you become a son of Abraham or when you become a follower of the Mashiach and you are immersed into his blood, which the Torah is called blood. And so you're immersed into Torah. Not only are you brought into covenant, but you're also brought into the bloodline. Welcome. It's a transference going on here. And remember, the bloodline comes together and with the covenant in Boaz. And so we know that Boaz was also uh, in covenant as well because descendants of Yehuda, the line of Yehuda is covenant. Uh, wow. When I finished Bereshit 49. I don't know. We'll try. And then it says that um, I want to go to the stone verse. That was stone two four. Okay. His prophecy concerning his brothers was fulfilled because he relied on God's might. His power was authoritatively established when one of the arms of his hands was bedecked with Paro's gold ring by the agency of God, the mighty one of Yaakov, who sustains the people of Israel. From then on, he became a shepherd of me, his father, the founder of the people of Israel, providing or by providing my welfare. He further deserves greatness because when he was seduced by Potiphar's wife, uh, okay, we're going to say this and uh, this is kind of awkward, but here we go, says his procreative organ was stopped by his sudden resolution not to sin and his seed miraculously dispersed through the fingers of his hands. That is um, in the Kehert Humash. And it says that verse 25, addressing Yosef directly, Yaakov continued, you succeeded in resisting her thanks to the help you received from God, from the God of your father, who will continue to help you in the future. He came to your aid because your heart remained with him, the almighty, loyal to him when she tried to seduce you. He will bless you with the blessings of dew from the heaven above. And remember, dew is what uh, the Talmud brings down in Tractate, I believe it's Shabbat, about uh, how the dew is what will be used to resurrect the righteous in the Alam Haba. And then it says that the, uh, so Yosef here has the blessings of the dew, which Mashiach Yeshua himself says, I am the life and the resurrection. Okay, Ben Yosef. Then it says, um, he will receive the dew from heaven above and blessings of springs flowing from the depths that lie below, as well as with the blessings of fertile insemination for your male progeny and of the wombs that do not miscarry. So now you're not going to have any miscarriages. OK, that's and that ended up being a promise given to Israel, by the way, as far as uh, in Vayikra, when it says that none of your women will miscarry, um, basically due to. Keeping the covenant, walking in the commandments of Hashem, inheriting the land, so entering into the land and remaining faithful to Torah, Hashem will make sure that you're fruitful and you multiply. So there's that. And then uh, verse 26, Bereshit 49, 26, the blessings bestowed by God upon me, your father, have surpassed the blessings he bestowed upon my forefathers. For whereas he blessed Abraham only to inherit the land of Israel, then repeated the same blessing to Yitzhak, 
He blessed me to spread out beyond its borders to the utmost bounds of the eternal hills. Footnote uh, says, see Bereshit 28.14. Then it says, these were the blessings that my mother longed for me to receive. May these blessings rest upon the head of Yosef, upon the head of the one who was separated from his brothers. All righty then. That's like a get you some section of uh, parasha right there. All right. So 49, 24. Yosef is literally the Evan. And then uh, I'm going to do some interlinear here. 49, 24. It uses row A, which is shepherd. Evan, which is stone. Yisrael. And then if you look at um, basically the first letters of those three words, Resh, Aleph, Yod, that is also the word Ori, which is my light. So Hashem is my light and my salvation. That is speaking of Mashiach ben Yosef. And then you have, uh, just kind of seeing what else I see here. But look at some commentary. Says Vetashuv Beiten Kashto, which means yet his bow stayed taut and his arms were made firm. This means his power, his rule as viceroy was strongly established. Okay, this is the placing the ring on his hand. Then it says the word Evan here has the same sense of Zechariah 4 7. Evan. Harosh, the chief stone. Remember, Mashiach is the rejected one who has actually been made the chief cornerstone, the capstone. All the same thing. Where it denotes a high position. Ankylos also translates it in this manner. His translation of the verse is as follows. And the prophecy returned upon and was fulfilled in them, the brothers, i.e. the progeny contained and the dreams which he dreamed regarding them was fulfilled because he observed the law in secret. This is an addition made by Ankylos having no words in Hebrew text to correspond to it. And he put in the might, his trust. Okay, so all of that. The following is how the word of the Targum fits in with the Hebrew text. His prophecy was fulfilled is Tashuv or Tashav, which is the first word of Bereshit 49, 24. And then it says, because of the might, which is Etain, and then of the Holy One, blessed is he, served him as his bow, which is Kashto, and a trusty weapon. Therefore, gold was placed on his arms. Okay, so... That keeps going. That's some Targum just absolutely losing his mind. Then uh, Rashi, again, uh, Evan, Yisrael, the stone of Israel. Ankylos takes Evan as an abbreviation of Av, Ve, Ben. Therefore renders it the fathers and children, meaning Yaakov and his sons. So Evan, Yisrael is the father and his sons. No, Sleek are the fathers and <laughs> children. Jacob and his sons. 
Remember, Yaakov is one of the patriarchs. And this is why Yosef is not really said to, but alluded to be a patriarch as well. And uh, you can find this uh, for, I'm going to give you one source here on this, that you can look at the Parsha Mnemonic uh, from Rabbi Roskin when he is uh, talking about Parsha Pincus and how there are the festivals that there is uh, Pesach, which correlates to Avraham, and then there is Shavuot, which relates to Yitzhak, Sukkot, which relates to Yaakov, and Shemini Azeret. Yes, he went there and said, This is Yosef. So there's your four patriarchs. So, anyway, there is all that. Yosef is a stone. Wow. Okay, so uh, I don't know where I was, but I, I was last thing I remember talking about before I blacked out was uh, Torah, Avoda, and Chesed. You know the three pillars by which the world stands: Pirkei Avot, Pirkei Avot, one two, and the Rebbe of Lapid, Rabbi Griffin, Captain Israel, Mister Gitchusam, uh, basically was saying the last letters of that spell the echo. And Echo is saying Gematria is David and Yod, which is hand. Um, and so the voice of God is the hand, David, and gives us this picture of Torah, prayer, and kindness. Okay, so Avoda. Let's go ahead and go to Shodnaf Pincus because that's the only thing that I can consciously pay attention to right now. Let's open it up with this introduction because I love this introduction that he brings down. First thing Shodnaf Pinkus drops in Parsha Akev, he says, On this upcoming Shabbat Kodesh, which approaches auspiciously, we bless the last month of the year. Okay, Lul is the last month of the year. Well, the second last month of the year anyway, because the other last month of the year is um, Adar. Because the month of Nisan is considered to be the first month, like a new year, but the actual new year is Tishrei, even though it's the seventh month. And so what comes before Tishrei on the calendar is Elul. So you have Elul and Adar having the same kind of picture and context. And remember, the whole Sefer of Devarim is recited from... Shavat, which is the month that precedes Adar, all the way until the seventh of Adar. Literally the last, uh, I think it was the last five weeks of Moshe's life. He's just going, just droshing. So if you think Shaul's drosh was really long and Acts where the guy fell out the window because Shaul kept going all night with his teachings, uh, then go to Devarim and see about that. Shodan Pincus says this, we bless the last month of the year on this Shabbat. And this month, the month of Elul that we're blessing is called the month of Teshuva. So he does all this. And then I'm going to jump over here. He says, we are familiar with the illusion the Baal Haturim points out regarding the month of Elul and the Pasuk Devarim 30 verse 6. 
Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The first letters of et levavka ve'et levav. So your heart and the heart, okay, which is et levavka ve'et levav. These words, that phrase, the first letters of each of those words spell Alul. Okay, now there's a, another uh, acronym of Alul that says Ani Le Dodi Ve Dodi Li. Uh, and that is, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And this relates to the whole teaching of the king is in the field. It's actually uh, brought down from Shir HaSharim. And... Um, it's like this preparing to be married, getting to be wedded kind of thing. And so you're looking at Teshuvah, preparing for your marriage ceremony, because remember, Sukkot is likened to a wedding festival celebration, because literally a Jewish wedding, they celebrate for seven days. So get you some of that. And that's where Mashiach turned the water into wine. And it was just kind of like that whole first miracle that's taught from the Besorah. So anyway, it's just like, it goes on and on and on. But anyway, but we're talking about a different kind of uh, acronym. We're not talking about Ani Le Dodi Ve Dodi Li. We're talking about Elul being your heart and the heart of your offspring. And it says, this alludes to the fact that HaKadosh Baruchu circumcises the hearts of Yisrael during the month of Elul to rid them of the negative influence of the Yetzer Hara, allowing them to serve Hashem with a pure heart. Now, this is incredible, especially when you overlay Tehillim 51. We went through all of that in my previous podcast. Um, I covered that, I believe. Oh my goodness. It feels like eternity ago, but that was literally yesterday's post. Ekev, get you some. And so... Um, I don't know why it seems like I didn't do that sooner or, or earlier, but it was just 24 hours ago. Wow. All right, Bruce. It keeps going here. We're talking about circumcising our heart being circumcised by Hashem. Remember, I talked about coming to, through Mashiach Yeshua, having a moon in him. Our hearts are circumcised. And remember that Mashiach is the Torah made flesh. So if we're entering into Torah, the Torah is actually circumcising our heart as well. And it's destroying our Yetzahara as far as leading us into negative influence. Because literally, you don't want to destroy your Yetzahara. You want to subjugate it to the service of Hashem. You know, you want to cause the darkness to be made into light, you know. And so... Uh, that's also brought down in this week's Torah portion because when it when we look at the Shema when it says Bekol Levavcha, there are two bets in Levavcha, and they said that this is like serving Hashem with your two hearts or with your two inclinations. And um, I was listening again. I may have repeated this before, but I'm gonna say it again because it's just that amazing. Rabbi Moshe knew teaching on serving Hashem with your Yetzahara. Beautiful drosh, if you can check that one out. Uh, but he's saying that you refrain from sin, you uh, use this test, so to speak, to um, draw closer to Hashem. 
when you're tempted by the Yetzirah and you refrain from that temptation and yet you turn to Hashem, that actually increases your devotion, that increases your service to Him. So it's not this thing that we want to uh, get rid of our Yetzahara. We actually want to subjugate it and use it in our service to Hashem to make our Basically, to make our calling and election sure, you know, to know that we're truly for Hashem, that if we can be tempted with evil and uh, if we can, let me just break it down in simple food terms, because I like food and maybe some of you like food, but uh, one of my favorite foods is donuts. And so if I'm driving by a donut shop, that's obviously not kosher. And uh, I am breaking my device over here. So Sleeka, let me... Uh, put that back together and okay uh anyway so i am a person who loves donuts and um basically i have to eat kosher donuts because not only that i have to but i want to and i'm going to so believe that know that and trust that and so if i'm out and about and i see donuts and they don't have a hexer on them i am tempted but i will refrain and cease and desist and because of that I am made stronger in my character and my morality, and I am giving myself as a witness to myself that I am for Hashem. You know, and it's just like, okay, man, it's just it's just a donut. Don't eat that. Go find something else kosher and eat it. And it's just like, but I love donuts. And it's just like, that's the most beautiful thing about temptations is the things that you really, really love and that you're like, oh, my gosh, if I could just have a little bit of that. Oh, my goodness. You know, um, and you don't you don't go with your Yetzirah. You don't follow the counsel of your flesh and you say, no, flesh, you die right here. The spirit is what I'm going to walk by. And literally, you go back to Galatians where uh, Shaul is saying that, you know, let me go ahead and I need to source this Stand by because I don't want to jumble this up. This, it was so beautifully written that I just just read what's written. Yes. OK, it's uh, Galatians 5:17. It says, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. The kingdom of Hashem is all about subjugation. If you really think about the core of everything that Mashiach taught us, it's like, choose this day what you're going to do. Are you going to be for Hashem or are you going to be for yourself? Because if you're not with me, you're against me. And when Hashem said to Adam and Hava, by extension to us, that you can eat from any other tree in the garden, just not from that particular tree. Which, by the way, what's not mentioned that can be insinuated, implied and inferred is the tree of life. You can also eat from that tree because by default, the tree of life is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I don't know why they didn't eat from that, because that's where eternal life is found. And you think about what is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing Hashem. Let me give you that source. That is, boy, I'm just sourcing out everything. I ain't playing around. Tired of it. It's not having sources, man. It's bothersome. Okay, let's quit making stuff up, and I'm just reading. Okay, 
Yokanon 17.3, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Yeshua HaMashiach, whom you have sent. So interesting, if you're going to know God, you have to know Mashiach. So, yeah, about that. So anyway, to keep us from doing what we want to do, we have to overcome these challenges and these temptations, and we're subjugating ourselves to Hashem, which, by the way, just so happens to be Avoda, service of the heart. You know, how do you know what's in your heart? Because in Devarim chapter 8, uh, one of my devices I have named Navi, which is the Hebrew word for prophet, his battery is running low. So I'm going to read from him real quick before he uh, zaps out. It says in Devarim chapter 8, I'm going to read it from the Targum Yonatan because I can, because I get to, because I want to. Every commandment which I command you this day, observe you to do basically observe it and do it that you may live and multiply and go in and inherit the land which the lord swore to your fathers and remember all the way by which adonai your god has led you these 40 years in the wilderness to why did he lead us 40 years in the wilderness humble us and try us to know whether or not you would keep his commandments or not and if I'm not mistaken, that word for commandments is actually in the singular. Let me uh, pull up the Hebrew here. In order to teach you, man, it's not there by bread alone. That's verse 3. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Mitzvotav. Ha tishmor mitzvato. Okay, let's go to interlinear here. Okay, so n nobody's really helping me on here because <laughs> it's all saying mitzvah to, uh, and mitzvah basically is the root of that word. But I wanted to point out that specific phrase because if you really think about what this is really saying, it's saying that all of the Torah is one mitzvah, namely listening to the voice of Hashem or loving Hashem. And remember that the word mitzvah comes from the word zava, which means connection. So it's a charge. Literally, it's called a guidestone, um, a point, command. Um, just kind of going through some different uh, translations here. Oh, as in send with a commander, send a messenger, put or set an order. And uh, you think about the connection, and the first time this word is used in Bereshit 2.16, and Hashem commanded the man saying from, oh my goodness, wow. <laughs> Targum Yonatan, what you got on Bereshit um, 2.16? Because the first use of mitzvah is about not eating from the tree. That's just uncalled for on so many levels okay so Bereshit 2 Targum Yonatan okay and Hashem okay I'm gonna start in 215 from Targum Yonatan and the Lord God took the man from the mountain of worship which by the way is Mount Moriah aka the Temple Mount so Hashem took the man from the Mount of worship where he had been created 
and made him dwell in the garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep its commandments. Okay, so when it says that Adam tended to the garden of Hashem, it is the fact that there is a moth in the apartment. <laughs> Sleek, I don't know. I'm That's forever in this recording now. Anyway, I got distracted. It was like, ooh, moth. But anyway, um, so my cat is attending to that. All right, Brook Shem. Anyway, back to Targum. Talking about the garden. So when Adam is placed in the garden to work it and to tend to it, it's literally about keeping the Torah and its commandments. Because the garden was watered already. It was already growing. Everything was being uh, self-maintained. All Adam needed to do was listen to the voice of Hashem i.e. follow the mitzvah and then it says in verse 16 and the lord god commanded there's our first use of zav and it says of every tree of the garden you may eat but of the tree of whose fruit they who become wise to know between good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you will be guilty of death and the lord god said it is not right that adam should be sleeping alone i will make unto him a wife who may be a helper for him and it keeps going on from there but if you look at the fact that it says that this tree that you eat of that there is wisdom between the good and and evil when you eat of that you're going to be guilty of death and it's like if we apply our own wisdom of what is life and our own wisdom of what is death, when we ingest that into ourselves, that makes us guilty of death because we, by default, are not Hashem. So do we really truly know life and do we or sleek God, do we really truly know good and do we really truly know evil? Because when Mashiach was called good teacher, he said, why do you call me good? There is no one good but the Father. So in other words, the temptation for eating from the tree, us becoming like a Shem, I mean, that was definitely true. Um, what did Hasatan say? Oh, here we go. Chapter 3, and the serpent was wiser unto evil. Again, so now you got, there's this saying, consider the source, right? So you got the serpent. If you're going to listen to the serpent, he's already bent on evil. So he was wiser unto evil, not wiser unto good. So listening, just be careful who you're listening to. Is this person really a person that's leaning more towards life or are they leaning more towards death? You know, and you can tell the difference because you shall know a tree by its fruit. But anyway. It says that he was wiser unto evil than all the beasts of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Is it true that the Lord your God has said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the rest of the fruits of the trees of the garden, we have power to eat. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, the Lord had said, You fear. Oh, there's our low battery warning. You shall not eat of it, nor approach it, lest you die. In that hour, the serpent spoke accusation against his creator and said to the woman, Dying, you will not die. For every artificer 
hates the son of his art. Basically saying that the creator hates his creation. That just happened. That's pretty horrible. Then it says, for it is manifest before the Lord that in the day you eat of it, you will be as great as the great angels. You will be as the great angels who are wise to know between good and evil. Uh, just going to interject this. Not really sure. Don't take it for gospel, but I'm pretty sure that the great angels, um, this wisdom of good and evil is not something to uh, grasp. This is why the idea that Mashiach would descend from Hashemayim and take the form of a man, even a servant, uh, and be obedient to death, not considering equality with Hashem, something to be grasped. You know, anytime we're trying to reach up into the heavenlies and try to think on their wavelengths and on their patterns, that's an issue. We don't want to try to be great. We want to be a servant, you know, uh, and that's the way that we can try to be great. Because by default, if you're being a servant, you're not really trying to be great. You're actually just trying to love. You're actually just trying to serve, you know, and that's the heart of God. So anyway. This leveled accusation here that you will be like the heavenly powers, basically, that's um, that's what we call bait. And uh, that's what we call not good. So by default, the the wisdom that we would think that we would have of good and evil puts us in a very, very bad place. And that's what makes us guilty, because now we can use our own wisdom. And remember, there's a way to seem right to a man. But in the end leads to death. I'm about to pull out the little blue book. Um, there's a way. Stand by. I'm getting, I'm getting a source. It is Mishlei 14.12. Enter in the Shomer Blue. Oh, I just gave it a name. Thank you, Hashem. This is called Shomer Blue. This is basically the Midrash of Mishlei. Mishlei Midrash. The Mim and Mim, 14.2, what we got on 14.2. But anyway, the whole point I just wanted to make with the tree of knowledge and good and evil is that we are not to walk by our own wisdom, because if we do, that's what actually makes us guilty. And the only wisdom of good and evil that we should know is the Torah. And basically, that's the voice of Hashem, which is the mitzvah, which is what Devarim chapter 8 was teaching us. And Navi, Todah for your services, you may be dismissed. All right, so it says, one who walks in his uprightness fears Hashem. A God-fearing person will conduct himself honestly and fairly in his interpersonal relationships. Vilna Gaon. He says that one who walks in his uprightness, implying that each individual has his own type and degree of uprightness, depending on his own desires, his environment, his ability, and so on. Everyone must walk a path that suits his own nature. Uh, I'm reading 14.2. Should have been reading 14.12. So that was extra information. Okay, there's a way that seems right to a man, but at its end are the ways of death. The ways of death, darke mavet. And you look at the first letters of that phrase is dalit and mem, that is blood, that is 44. And then it says that he commits, I'm going all right, okay. He commits a sin and says it's not a transgression. 
I just brought that up a minute ago, so thank you, Hashem, that I'm on the right track. That's from Rashi. Alternatively, a way may seem to be straight, but may be the one that leads to death. That's the Mizudot. People often delude themselves, so it is important. So it is important, as stated in previous verses, to evaluate one's actions. God presents a person with two paths. One seems smooth and straight, and then becomes full of thorns, pits, and obstacles. The second one, initially narrow and stop it, initially narrow and covered with thorns. Okay, this is literally eating from the tree of Mashiach, where he's covered in thorns. He says, "Enter into the narrow path." And so you think about this as one of the two paths that Hashem presents. You can either have the smooth way and in the end it's going to lead to death because you thought it was a right path. But then the actual proper path is the one that's narrow at the beginning. It's full of thorns and thistles. But in the end, it's smooth because, you know, when we go through this narrow path, I'm just just thinking right here or just trying to do some deductive reasoning that if we enter in to the suffering of Mashiach that ultimately we will reign with him in glory. So there's all that. The second path is elucidated here. This is the Al-Sheikh, by the way. He's just losing his mind. Okay. The second is initially narrow and covered with thorns, but it turns into a beautiful landscape path. Think about the Alam Haba. Today you shall be with me in paradise. The guy who made Teshuvah next to Mashiach, I mean... If he made teshuva on the stake, then how much more so us not being on the stake, but carrying our stake, making teshuva? I mean, what is that? You know, actually listening to the voice of Hashem. What is that? Actually being filled with the spirit of Hashem. What is that? I mean, that sounds like some legitness. Similarly, each person is presented with two options. Either he is attracted to physical pleasures that will lead to sin and Gehenna. Which, by the way, Gehenna is the word for hell. So, yes, Jews believe in hell. There's that again. That's like Parsha Korach all over again. That whole week was, if you didn't think Jews believed about Gehenna, all the sources talked about it. Anyway, continuing with Shomer Blue, a.k.a. the Mishle Midrash, it says, Or he may choose to amass treasures for the hereafter. Don't store up your treasures here where moths and rust can get to it. But store your, your treasures. Store up your treasures in Hashemayim, words of Mashiach. Okay, so um, I officially don't know what I'm doing now. Oh, I was in uh, <laughs> Shon of Pincus. All right, so Hashem circumcising our heart. This is the month of Elul. Now, let's learn about Avoda. This is the beginning of teaching about Avoda. Shon of Pincus is going on here. He says, we focus on the second paragraph of the Kriyat Shema. Okay, the recitation, Slika of the Shema which is the greatest commandment. And it says, this appears in this week's Torah portion in Parsha Ekev in chapter 11, verse 13. Should you thoroughly heed my mitzvot that I am commanding you today to love Adonai your God and to serve him with all your heart and your entire being. Expounding on this pasuk, Chazal teaches us, Ta'anit 2a, which service of Hashem is performed in the heart, because it says that to love Hashem, your God, serve him with all your heart. Which service is that? Tani 2a says, you must say that it is tefillah. So the avoda is tefillah. The avoda is prayer. It says, based on the definition of chazal, 
it is clear that tefillah is composed of two components. The essence of tefillah is referred to as avoda, which is service, and the location of tefillah, that is in the heart. It behooves us to implore the significance of the characterization avoda that is performed with in the heart. It is apparent that Chazal relied on the wording of this passage and to serve Hashem with all your heart. In that case, however, they should have said service that is performed with the entire heart. Now, check out this take on uh, Romans 12, verse 1, by the way. From the, uh, I'm going to go to the OJB, or my Bible app. It. There we go. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the OJB, you know, so got to down with OJB. Yeah, you know me. Yeah, that just happened. Making up a rap while I'm looking for verses. I appeal to you, therefore, Achim Be Mashiach, brothers in Mashiach, through the Rachmei Hashem, through the mercies of Hashem, present your bodies. Just like the people in Bereshit 47, 18. Just read that verse and you'll truly understand. I mean, this is like dire need of provision. So only thing I have left is my body. Anyway, so present your bodies, all of your being, like literally all of your heart, as a Korban Kai, a living sacrifice. Kadosh, holy and acceptable to Hashem. Ready? Which is your spiritual avoda? He put it right there. Okay, anyway, so this is our avoda, service of the heart. Now, again, so he's going to quote uh, Pirkei Avot 1-2. The world stands on three pillars, on the Torah, on the religious service, which is avoda, and on the performance of acts of kindness. And then it says that Rabbeinu Yonah comments on the nature of the pillar of religious service, which is avoda. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose Israel from among all the nations. He chose from all the lands of Yerushalayim and he chose from Yerushalayim Zion. Narrow, narrow, narrow. Got all the nations. He's like, I choose Israel. From all the lands, I choose Jerusalem. Like, in other words, all the provinces of Israel. You're going to narrow it down to Yerushalayim. And in Yerushalayim, he's going to choose Zion. As it states in Tehillim 132.3, For Hashem has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. And this is the mountain that we've come to. We've not come to the we've come to a spiritual mountain, as Hebrews chapter 12 puts it. This is Mount Zion. And this, by the way, I would I would go ahead and imagine would be uh, the mountain that Mashiach is telling the woman at the well. Uh, in the Basora account, you will not worship neither on that mountain or this mountain, right? Uh, see, let me give you, again, we're going to source it out. All right, so we're in Yochanan chapter 4. Again, I'm going to go to the OJB 4. Okay, so we're going, we're going. And give me a drink, the flock, go have eternal life. Um... Go, go call your husband. Okay, starting in verse 20. Okay, so our fathers on this mountain, which the mountain she's talking about is Gerizim. And so on this mountain, on the mountain of Gerizim, which is, by the way, the, uh, the one of the two mountains that you see the blessings and the cursings coming up in Parsha Re'eh. 
So you'll see Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so here on Mount Gerizim, this woman, she's saying to Mashiach, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that in Yerushalayim is the place where it's necessary to worship. Mashiach says to her, first of all, don't put words in my mouth. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't say that. But he says, have Amuna in me. A hour comes when neither this mountain nor in Yerushalayim will you go and worship the Father. You will worship that of which you have no knowledge. We worship that of which we have knowledge because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when those of true Avoda Kodesh, here we go, service of the heart, will worship the Father in Ruach HaKodesh and in Amet will be filled with the spirit and they will be filled with the Torah. Because remember, Amet is synonymous with Torah. Because Tehillim says that your word is truth. Your word is the Torah. Your Torah is truth. Your Torah is Amet. Okay, source that out too. Here we go. Your word is truth. Tehillim. Oh, really? <laughs> We're going to go to Yochanan 1717 because sanctify them by your truth. Um... But uh, that is literally like a standby, you know, Tehillim one nineteen. It's just it's got a few verses. All right. So uh, starting in one forty four. Oh, here we go. One forty one nineteen one forty two. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. Literally. Ve Toratka emet. Your Torah is truth. So when Mashiach Yeshua here is talking about worshiping the Father in Ruach and Amet, in the Holy Spirit and in the truth, which is the Holy Spirit and the law. For indeed, the Father is seeking such to worship him. Hashem is spirit and it is necessary for those worshiping him to worship in spirit and in truth. How to be filled with the Torah. And this is the sapphire tablets, by the way. The sapphire tablets literally were full of the spirit of God. That's why the letters floated. That's why the, the law was light. The yoke was easy. The burden was light. Moshe was able to carry these heavy tablets down. They were heavy. They weighed 40 se'ah, which is the weight of a mikvah. So he's carrying a mikvah when he's carrying the tablets, when he's carrying the law, the size of a man, a Jewish man, the size of um, basically they're cubed. And so I again alluded to it being like a tiny house. So you have a man cubed size uh, tablets. There's two of them represented the two Mashiachs. They're floating. They're full of the spirit. They're pierced. Um, this whole picture is right here, you know. All these different things coming together. Uh, it says, Hashem is Ruach, and it is necessary for the ones to worship Him in spirit and truth. Take these sapphire tablets, basically. The woman says to him, I have knowledge that Mashiach is coming, the one being called the Mashiach. When Mashiach comes, he will proclaim to us everything. Yeshua says to her, Ani who? I am he the one speaking to you just in case you need to know did mashiach ever say he was the mashiach yokanon chapter 4 verse 26 get you some all right the dalit which is 
the door, which is the Kohen. The Kohen is the door. And this is Yeshua, who is called the Dalit, the door. You know, he says, I am the the sheep's gate, you know, enter in through me, enter in through the gate of righteousness, the door. And then 26 is the divine name of Hashem. So, yes, I'm doing Gematria with the scripture address. So, Yochanan 426 can literally be translated Yochanan Yeshua Cohen door Hashem. There you go. And he says, I am the Mashiach. Okay. So everything is now starting to run out of batteries and, um, you know, I'm totally fine with that. I'm just going to keep going here until everything just kind of drains down. I know what you're thinking. Matt, just go get a charger and you don't have to worry about running out of battery. Well, I could, but, uh, you know, I'm only supposed to be doing this for an hour. <laughs> and uh, not that I'm upset about going beyond an hour, but, you know. Uh, we're just going to do this. So anyway, back to Shonaf Pincus. So Hashem has chosen Mount Zion as his habitation. And I was saying Yochanan chapter 4 can uh, be a possible illusion, a remez, if you will, to Mount Zion. Okay. So now it says that, and he chose Avoda and the Beit HaMikdash, which the scripture associates with divine will. Okay, so the divine will is Avoda, service of the heart. And then this is the Beit HaMikdash, Vayikra 1.3, in accordance with his will before Hashem, that phrase. And it says, thus you see that the entire world was created for the sake of the Avoda, However, due to our sins, the Mikdash was destroyed and the Avoda was abolished. Tefillah has replaced it. So therefore, we have something greater than the temple when we are involved in the service of the heart, when we uphold the Shema to love Hashem our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our resources. And then with all of our heart, we're serving Hashem. That is the replacement and the substitution of the temple and the sacrifices so it says and it states over here and showed up pinkus and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul what avoda is performed with the heart it is to feel all right few machine gun rounds here we go rabbeinu yonaj to substitutes for the corbinote superior to the corbinote corbinote only atone for inadvertent transgressions to the excluding of intentional transgression. Tefillah atones for intentional transgressions as well. Tehillim 51.17 Adonai seftai tivtaku fiyagi tehilateka Adonai open up my lips and my mouth declare your praise for you do not desire sacrifice else I would give it to you. You do not want a sacrifice. He'd rather have our heart. You know, uh, as Mashiach put it, I'd rather you go and learn that I desire mercy instead of sacrifice. And Rabbi Griffin put it beautifully in his 40 days of Teshuvah Drash that he just taught this week. He says that, you know, we try to be all uh, grandiose with our observance to Hashem and with our service to him. When really, if we zoom in, 
Are we really loving Hashem? We're reciting Brako, we're eating kosher, we're wearing zizi, we're wrapping tefillin, we're making teshuva, but do we really love Hashem? We're praying for the return of Mashiach and we're uh, praying without ceasing, we're being thankful in everything, but do we love Hashem? Are we really about Hashem? I desire to serve you with all of my heart. So anyway, it says, For David HaMelech mistakenly thought that he had sinned intentionally, because he's talking about the sin with Bathsheba in Tehillim 51. And it says, Hence he requested that HaGadosh Baruch Hu open up his lips so that he could pray to have his iniquities forgiven. And HaGadosh Baruch Hu is not interested in a Corbin for a sin committed intentionally. See, this is what it's talking about. He doesn't want to sacrifice. Because if you're intentionally sinning, there is no sacrifice for that. So Hashem obviously doesn't want a Corbin if there is no sacrifice for that. But with there not being a sacrifice for that, and you're bringing an, a heart that is full of regret and remorse that desires to take a different course of action, returning to the scene of the crime, but yet doing something different. And in other words, if we are placed back in the garden and we have the option of what to eat from, that even if we're tempted by the great serpent to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we refrain. We go, you know what? Shalom. Or, you know what, deuces, or you know what, I'm out, or you know what, forget you, or you know what, bye Felicia, I'm serving Hashem, okay? So that's Avoda. Avoda, basically, if you want to sum it up, is bye Felicia, I'm serving Hashem. I can't believe that's my, uh, that, that's my, bring it all down and distill it into that one point. <laughs> Uh, and another little uh, source here, Barakot 32b, Tefillah is greater than the Corbinot. So there you go. There's your prayer. Uh, there was this beautiful thing. He talked about the heart of the world. Um, let's see. Devarim 18.5, to stand and to serve, and the legs should be kept together like the Kohanim during the Avodah. And place and a place should be set aside like for the Corban note for each one has it does has its designated place for slaughter and its blood for sprinkling. So the tefillah has replaced the Corban is written Hosea 14:3. let our lips substitute for the bulls. It is also written and to serve him with your entire heart. Now, is there such a thing as a voter with the heart? So, what is a voter with the heart? You must say that it is tefillah. Therefore, one must heed that it be performed with the same intent as the Corbin. Okay. Um, by the way, there is a passage where um, Kepha is walking to the temple. And um, he heals a guy, uh, the lame man. It's Acts chapter 3. Now, it says, Now, Kepha and Yochanan went up together to the temple. At the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Remember, darkness was on the face of the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour when Mashiach was on the crucifixion stake. I.e., this is like a minka between the evening's time. And so this is like the minka prayer. This is when the final lamb is offered up. And you find that the Talmudim of Mashiach are going to the temple to make sacrifices because prayer is also done near where the sacrifices take place. 
Um, where are we at here? It's just brought this up. Um, one who prays must direct his heart towards Hashemayim. That's Barcode 31A. Uh, okay, so the designation Avoda indicates that the tefillah represents the Avoda of the Korbanot. The designation of Belev, which is in the heart, indicates that the tefillah requires pure intent and focus solely to Hashem, just as the Avoda of the Korbanot does. And then, uh, proper intent. Here it is. Okay. According to Rabbeinu Yonah, okay, he's just all over Rabbeinu Yonah. Okay, it says, um, They daven shakarit in close proximity to the sacrificing of the morning tamid, and minka in close proximity to the afternoon tamid. So if you look in Acts chapter 3, when Kepha and Yochanan are going up to the temple to pray minka, the ninth hour, they're going for the evening tamid offering, and they're going to pray. And this is the sacrifice that's going on because prayer happens in close proximity to the sacrifices. And there's this whole thing that Shona Pinkus brings up about how the reason why we're praying next to the sacrifices is to uh, give ourselves a physical thing to look at to show us what our prayers are accomplishing. So when we are looking at the sacrifices, we're remembering that that should be us. You know, like we should be uh, bloodletted. Uh, we should be slaughtered. You know, we should be placed up on the altar. You know, all of that that would happens to that animal, that should happen to us. And when we are entering into avoda, when we're entering into fila, that is happening to us. And so, no wonder there's atonement, because you know Hashem looks upon these sacrifices and when those sacrifices are brought in purity and when those sacrifices are brought in hearts that are completely devoted and like seeking him like a child crying out in their soiled mess you know whether a child fell scraped his knee and he's in the mud or in a puddle of blood or there is uh, an infant who has pretty much just kind of messed up their diaper and they're crying because they need to be changed like this is our avoda when we're crying out into shuva those are some pretty graphic images but i would just submit to you that if you're praying next to the gold, the bronze altar the uh the mizbeach in the courtyard that uh it's probably pretty graphic so anyway there's blood everywhere there's uh sharp knives and ninjas like working in daytime so just submitting that to you uh food for thought uh i always love to call the levi'im and the kohenim ninjas because in order to make these sacrifices you have to be very very accurate and precise at the vessel or the yes the blood vessel at which you um cut so that you can drain the blood appropriately Slika, and so that the slaughter counts um, because it also talks about and showing up pink is here that when we're praying and we get all distracted and our mind wanders and we're still trying to pray and we're just like oh you know i want to think about this and i'm supposed to be praying but whatever when we're doing that it's like an m it's like a non-kosher slaughter so we're presenting a trafe which is a blemished sacrifice to a shem so if you think about the focus and the intent of all the priests 
in the temple, all the Levites in the temple, when they're doing all these kosher slaughters, you best believe they got some accuracy like you would not believe. And that's where the ninjas came from. All right. So anyway, you're probably like a met ninjas existed before Levites. OK, maybe they did. Anyway, um, so Avoda, Avoda, Avoda. All right. So with the little time I got left, I want to make sure I cover one of the things about mana that I really wanted to share. First of all, let me go with this. Uh, the Torah being spoken in 70 languages. Legends of the Jews. Um, Ishpela dropped this and uh, he did not give an example or the exact uh, passage reference. But uh, it's pretty much close to uh, Parashat Kev. If you're following in Legends of the Jews with the Torah portions. It says Moshe did not. However, merely admonished the people to walk in the ways of the Lord. But he said to Israel, I am near to death. Whosoever hath learned from me a verse, a chapter or a law, let him come to me and learn it anew. Whereupon he repeated all the Torah and that too in 70 languages of the world, that not Israel alone, but all the heathen peoples who might hear the teachings of God. So that was a uh, pretty violent and epic. And it says that the Ten Commandments began with the word Anoki, interpreted by our sages. This is Lakute Sikot, Onpar Shah Kanan. And it says that Anoki, interpreted by our sages, is an acronym for the Aramaic phrase Ananafshi. Or het vit ye yivet, which is I wrote myself down and gave over myself, i.e., God invested himself in the Ten Commandments. Shemot 20, verse 2, and Devarim 5, 6. Similarly, our sages, Pasita Rabbah, chapter 21, interpret the word Anoki as an acronym for the Hebrew words, meaning I gave and wrote down the Ten Commandments. So the essence of Hashem, the Ten Commandments really encapsulate the 613, which is the body parts of the king, the supernal man, the 248 organs, 365 sinews, 248 plus 365, 613. This represents a complete body. So literally when Hashem gave over himself in the form of a man, it was the Ten Commandments. It is the Torah. It is Mashiach Yeshua. That's why the Torah became flesh, because it was already in the likeness and in the form of flesh spiritually. So he was just like, let me just go ahead and physically flesh this out. Moreover, when giving these commandments, he spoke to every Jew individually. This is indicated by the use of the singular Hashem Eloheka, your God. Furthermore, this applies not only to Jews who stood at Sinai, but to Jews of all times, as our sages state, where did they state this? Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 24, Shemot Rabbah, the conclusion of chapter 28, Midrash Tankuma, Parsha Nitzavim, section 3, Zohar, volume 1, page 91, volume 2, page 83b, Tikkune Zohar, Tikkun 49, parentheses 86a, get you some sources. Every Jewish soul, those who lived before the giving of the Torah was intended for the souls and clothed in bodies. Nevertheless, the souls of the subsequent generations were granted an out-of-body experience 
of the giving of the Torah so that afterwards they could merit the revelations of Gani Din in the world to come and the resurrection of the dead. Those who lived afterwards were present at the giving of the Torah. Every Jew heard God tell him, I am God, your Lord. It is as if he gave his entire essence to every Jew individually. This is why Acts chapter 2 literally talks about everyone heard the Talmudim speaking literally with tongues of fire and everyone heard the Torah in their own language. It's Shavuot, and that's what Shavuot's all about. And this is Yitzhak. This is why Yitzhak is the Akedah. Because one who places himself in the Akedah places himself in the Torah. Okay, so the Midrash offers, what Midrash? Shemot Rabbah, chapter 28, offers three interpretations of the phrase, a loud and unceasing voice, which describes God's granting of the Ten Commandments. I wanted to point out that uh, this voice did not have an echo, and um, that's one of the things here, and it says also the Torah was given in 70 languages, this is why proselytes are a thing, so anyone who says, yeah, we don't do conversions, and no one can convert and become a Jew, it's just like, well then, why was the Torah given in 70 languages? It wasn't given so that everybody could be no-eyes, but anyway, I digress. So you're looking at all this. And it says, explanation is necessary for God does not perform a miracle necessarily. A voice generally causes an echo that this voice did not. I'm being attacked over here. Uh, it says, the explanation is necessary for God does not perform a miracle unnecessarily. Since a voice generally causes an echo, the fact that this voice did not, particularly since it was a strong voice, required a deviation from the natural order. What is the reason for this deviation? Commentators explain the necessity for this miracle. Were there an echo? One might have thought the echo was a second voice. Rather than allow for such misconception, God prevented the voice, which pronounced the 10 mitzvot, from having an echo. And then it says, another point, the Torah only relates stories when they serve as instruction in our divine service. What lesson can we learn from the fact that the voice proclaiming the Ten Commandments did not have an echo? And then um, basically at one point it talks about that the voice was absorbed. Yeah, it says an echo reflects the pattern of or chotzer, which is rebounding light, light which reflects the input of a recipient, a, a, a rebounding light. <clears throat> when a light is drawn down but reaches the point where an obstacle prevents it from being drawn down further, it rebounds. Similarly, when sound waves strike an object, so they're relating sound and light. So the voice of Hashem is the light of Hashem. That's what I'm thinking. Then it says, when sound waves strike an object through which they cannot pass, they bounce back. This bouncing takes place when the obstruction does not absorb the light or the sound waves. So, when Hashem announced, I am Hashem your God, there was nothing that could prevent this passage of his voice. It pervaded all existence, even inanimate objects. Every entity was permeated with his speech. Okay, and there you go. That was about to be something epic, so let me look at that. Uh, Hasidus keeps saying all these things that just like pop out and then they go away. Let me see if I can find it. I can find it on this one for sure. Okay. Hasidus explains in 
Sha'are or Ra, the higher an entity source, the lower it will descend. So think about that with uh, Mashiach Yeshua descending. It says, Anoki refers to God's essence. It is an Egyptian word. And by the way, Kehotumash brought this out during that parsha. Parsha Yitro said that um, this is Yosef. So when Yeshua is speaking, Mashiach being Yosef, again, the types and shadows of Yosef, that's all right there too. Okay, and then I would love to share about the manna. So let me find that real quick. Okay, here we go. Brukashem. So manna is brought up in Lakute Sakot on Parshai Kev. It says in the desert, Yehudim were confronted by both. There are two uh, challenges. There's poverty and affluence. And it says that we had both of these and uh, both are associated with manna. So whether they're poor or rich, that's the manna. For the manna represented the ultimate in affluence. Now, just for the sake of explaining affluence, says the state of having a great deal of money, wealth, a sign of our growing affluence. So the manna represents being rich and poor at the same time. Okay, put that with it satisfied our hunger, but yet left us feeling afflicted and hungry. Okay, and then we're supposed to do the Birkat Hamazon based off of that. Uh, then it says that the manna represented the ultimate and affluence. It was bread from heaven. It did not produce any waste. Yoma 75b. And then it says, and in it one could taste any flavor one desired. That's also Yoma 75a. In contrast, bread from the earth produces waste and is limited in its flavor. Moreover, our sages relate that the jewels and pearls, or relate that jewels and pearls descended together with the manna, bestowing affluence upon the Jewish people in the most literal sense. On the other hand, manna also produced a challenge of poverty. Reflected in our verse in this week's Torah portion, Devarim 8, 16, he fed you manna to give you hardship. As our sages explain, where do they explain? I'm glad you asked. Yoma 74b, the hardship involved the fact that the manna did not provide complete satisfaction. Mm -mm -mm. One opinion explains a person who has a loaf of bread in his bread box cannot be compared to one who does not. The manna would descend day by day. The Jews could not set any aside for the following day. This detracted from the satisfaction they felt while eating. Because you think about it, you're like eating this meal and you're like, oh, this is so good. But this is all I got. It's just like, well, the next time it's time to eat. Uh, unless Hashem rains down some manna, I don't have another meal. So you think about that. Think that's some serious faith. I mean, imagine if the only way you had the meal that you had is because it rained down during Shakarit. That that'll change you as far as uh, you know understanding how could the Jews have complained in the wilderness how could we complain it's like Hashem is going to provide my need and if he doesn't provide my need that's making me a little uncomfortable because I don't want to think about him not providing 
because Hashem is our provider, right? So anyway, this detracted from the satisfaction. So this is why they could eat but not get full, even though they ate and got full. Because they're still like, this is all we got for the day. You know, we got this manna. You know, there's enough to worry about today for tomorrow has enough worries of its own kind of thing. So then another rationale is offered. A person who sees what he is eating cannot be compared to a person who does not. For although manna would taste like any food the Jews wanted, they would only see manna, and this prevented them from being satisfied. Now, uh, let's see here. Two contradictory effects of the manna are the result of its transcendent nature, the wealth which accompanied the manna, the ability to taste any flavor, and the jewels that came with it, was the result of it being bread from heaven. A godly entity for godliness is totally unlimited. So the wealth which accompanied the manna was a result of it being bread from heaven, which is a godly entity for godliness is totally unlimited. Okay, Mashiach, when he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he kept breaking it. And it was unlimited supply of bread for thousands of people. That's because he's a godly entity and he is unlimited, just like the manna. Okay, anyway, for this reason, even after the manna descended and became part of our material world, even after Mashiach Yeshua descended and became part of our material world, spiritual qualities were retained. Sisika uh, to Parsha Beha Alotka says, accordingly. It did not produce waste, nor was it limited to one particular flavor. Its perfection included precious stones, the ultimate in the realm of inanimate objects. So why are we likened to living stones? Because those are precious in Hashem's eyes. Then um, for this reason, we could see in the manna all the foods whose flavors it can manifest. Our limited mortal eyes cannot appreciate the unbounded spiritual potential spiritual potential the manna contain the manna's fusion of affluence and poverty it was the manifestation of spirituality it was not limited at all if we want to understand a little bit more about mashiach we need to understand that he's completely spiritual and physical form and he's not limited so nevertheless it became part of our world associated with poverty for it left a person with nothing of his own nor was he able to see what he was eating, for the manna did not take on the appearance of even simple food. Okay, to cite a parallel, an extremely powerful light prevents a person from seeing. Like when we try to look at the sun, for example. So then, uh, yeah, so we're just going to index it right there. But, uh, you know, this completely gives us a picture of how Mashiach could be tired how he could be hungry, how he could uh, endure pain and affliction, how he could, quote unquote, die because he's unlimited. He is literally completely spiritual, descended from Hashemayim. He is the tiny form of and I say tiny as in he is the the contraction of Hashem into creation of the yod heh vav -Hey, 
the the name, the divine name of Hashem, the 26, contracted into human form. So there is that. Oh, my goodness. So I'm thinking about the Hebrew letter Chet because two plus six, 26, right? Two plus six is eight. And the Chet is the letter that is the gematria of eight. And the Chet is made out of the Vav and the Zayin. So when you put six and seven together, Vav is six, Zayin is seven, that's 13, that's Echad. And then the Vav represents man, and the Zayin represents like the sword, or it represents a crowned man. So the man, when he becomes crowned, or the man, the sword, when you put that together, that is the Chet, that is the 6 plus 7, which is 13, that is Hashem Echad. Remember, Mashiach is Echad. He is one body of many members. So when we say Shema, Adonai, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, that 13, we're talking about the contracted form of Hashem, which is 2 plus 6, which is 8, which is Mashiach Yeshua. And there's that. Okay. Uh, if I could pick one more thing from this week's Torah portion to share, it definitely is going to be the Birkat saying the blessing before we eat. Because there is all this talk about how basically um, if you look at people who pray when it comes to eating, Christianity teaches and shows and uh, models that you pray before you eat, but they don't pray after you eat. And so that kind of plagues the mind of people who are Torah observant, because it's just kind of like it says in Devarim 8.10 that after you've eaten and after you're satisfied, you shall bless Hashem. So it's like you should be saying a bracha after you eat, but it's just kind of like, okay, but it's not being shown that. So what's up with that? But anyway, praying before you eat is actually very, very rabbinic. So even Christianity is walking in rabbinic Judaism to a certain extent, which I'm just going to go ahead and interject and throw out that the reason that is, is because Mashiach being covered in Rome, Mashiach being um, at the gates of Rome, um, the the Mashiach as lifted up by Christians and uh, the church is that, you know, he is the Messiah. He is Jewish, you know, so therefore his influence is there. But it's like once you get attached to that, he draws you out. So it's an extraction process. You're not meant to stay in the church. You're not meant to continue to be Christian. You're actually meant to convert and become B'nai Yosef, B'nai Ephraim, B'nai Yisrael, because ultimately children of Yaakov, which are sons of Abraham. But anyway, I digress. So you see this whole thing about saying a bracha before you eat. So I'm in the Baal HaTurim. I want to start with this. So it's Devarim 8.10. Valkata Vesavata Uverata. And you will eat and you will be satisfied and you will bless. This refers to the grace after meals. You, we must also recite a blessing before eating. That is footnote 78. Let me find that. Note 78. Here we go. It says the obligation to recite a blessing after eating is scriptural origin. So to recite a blessing after eating when we're satisfied is of the scripture. 
However, the concept of reciting a blessing before eating is rabbinic injunction based upon the scriptural verses, as the Baha Torum explains further in this comment. See Barakot 35a and also Rambam with a mem Hilakot Brakot 1, 1 through 2. Footnote 79, Barakot 35a, Tehillim 24.1 speaks to a person who has not yet recited a Braka. Beware you may eat, you may, or Slika. Beware you may not eat because the earth and its fullness belong to Hashem. Tehillim 115.16 speaks to the one who has recited the proper blessing. You may eat. Because he has given you or because he has given the earth to mankind. So literally, when you say the blessing before eating something, that which belongs to Hashem now belongs to you. So what does it mean to recite a blessing? The word Baruch, by definition, means to bow the knee. And again, remember, I talked about this whole thing with subjugation being connected and this whole lineage, you know, being uh, a shliach and all that you're connecting yourself to Hashem when you say a bracha so that which becomes which is his now becomes yours so you take Tehillim 24.1 and turn it into Tehillim 115.16 through an exchange of words we become connected with Hashem and again this is why it's important for us to be in Mashiach because that's how we're connected with Hashem so let me finish out this Bahaturim comment it says that there's a lot more comment left. All right, we're just gonna uh, just gonna round this out. Okay, so we must also recite a blessing before eating. In that vein, the verse can be interpreted: "You will eat, and you will be satisfied, and you will have already blessed." So the same word we use for "you will eat and be satisfied, and you will bless," like after you eat, say the birkat. The same words also translate to you will eat and you will be satisfied and you will have already said a blessing. So uverakta can mean bless now after you eat or uverakta can mean you've already blessed. Now you're going to bless him after you've eaten. Okay. So it says that um, it is forbidden for a person to benefit from this world without reciting a blessing. As indicated, Tehillim 24.1, the earth is the fullness of. The earth and its fullness belong to Hashem. Because, you know, you don't want to steal. That's part of the top ten, right? Then it says, however, after one has recited a blessing, one eats of his own, as it is stated. But he, being Hashem, has given the earth to mankind. Okay, continuing. Uh, also, the implication of the verse you have said to Hashem, you are my Lord. I have no claim to your benefit, Tehillim 16.2. Thus, once I acknowledged you, Hashem, as my Lord, the benefit no longer comes from you, for you have granted it to me. Okay. Uh, Ve'alkata, the gematria of this word is 457, equivalent to Zehu Vik Zayit, which means this refers to an olive-sized portion. So this is where... The halakha of if you've eaten an olive-sized portion of bread, you say the birka hamazon. Or a meal consists of eating an olive-sized portion. So then, um, you know, when you think about Mashiach being like the oil, the olive oil, the pure pressed, which is what you put in the menorah to bring forth light. So 
that and I don't know if Aleph would be a name of Mashiach but you know that'd be interesting wish Hasis was here I love you bro shout out to you uh, and then we have Valkata Vesabata you will eat and you will be satisfied and you shall bless juxtaposed to this passage is verse 11 through 20 it says that it begins with guard yourself lest you forget the juxtaposition indicates it is necessary to recall the day of death within the text of the grace after meals that's interesting it says for this reason the sages established the blessing who hate who mate who yate lanu Okay, that whole thing. He is good. He does good. The fourth blessing of the Birkat Hamazon, which was composed to recall the martyrs of Betar, who were ultimately brought to burial. Okay, it was this whole miraculous thing about seven years went by. These bodies did not decompose and they were laying out exposed to the elements. And so... Uh, open miracles and it was said that this is one of the last open miracles that Hashem did following the destruction of the temple so there's that so guard yourself lest you forget and um, that means that we are to recall the day of death within the Birkat Hamazon okay this whole thing about life and uh, death from life kind of thing pretty crazy so in conclusion what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Vekaye olam natabetokeinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha-Torah Amen. Yehi ratzom milfaneka Adonai Eloheinu velohea voltenu, that you send Mashiach speedily and soon in our days, with the gathering in of all the exiles and the proselytes into Eretz Israel to Yerushalayim, your city rebuilt as an eternal structure, speedily and soon in our days. May you cause our eyes to see and merit, may we merit to see the return of Mashiach Yeshua. Father, may you continue to sweeten the judgment, Adonai, and bring the redemption soon. May it be very, very soon, Adonai, that we are inscribed and sealed for a good life in the Olam Haba. May you make us worthy of the days of the Mashiach and the Olam Haba. Amen, amen. And until that time, may we all be Lapidim, lifting up the light of Torah to the nations. And may we all walk in the footsteps of Mashiach, which is Ekev. Baruch Hashem. Blessings over your Shabbat. And as we head into Elul, may you be inscribed and sealed for a good year. Leshana Tova. Shalom.